Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast, a collection of live audio recordings from Kol Hadash Humanistic Congregation. This is episode 19, Inauguration. Kol Hadash was founded in 2001 and Rabbi Adam Shalom was hired in 2004. To celebrate our 10th anniversary, let's listen back to the first sermon from Rabbi Shalom as our rabbi. A new Genesis. In the beginning, the future was without form and void, clouded and deep, and the spirit of possibility hovered over the waters of Lake Michigan. (laughs) A new voice, a Kol Hadash, said, let there be a pulpit committee. (laughs) And there was a pulpit committee. And Kol Hadash saw that a pulpit committee could be good. And the pulpit committee did its work and brought new definition to the future and found a new rabbi. And on the seventh day, on Shabbat, the pulpit committee rested, for they saw everything that they had made, and behold, it was very good. (laughs) Welcome to a new era at Kol Hadash. I was thinking this afternoon, I'm no longer a guest. (laughs) I don't get to leave town and let things run on their own anymore. Uh, It's my show, so to speak, and I was reminded of the wisdom of a great Jewish sage, Mel Brooks, who once said, it's good to be the king. (laughs) Now, living as an American Jew, as many of us are, uh, we have many new beginnings every year. There's, of course, January 1st, the beginning of the new year uh, in the secular calendar. There is a new year for trees in the spring called Tu B'Shvat. There is, of course, the beginning of summer vacation, also known as Freedom Months for parents uh, when they go to camp. There is the beginning of the congregational year, usually in July. There is the American birthday we just celebrated of July 4th. There's the beginning of the school year near Labor Day. I remember a commercial for an office supply store where parents are leading their children through the store buying back-to-school supplies, and the music playing over the commercial is, it's the most wonderful time of the year. A new beginning. And, of course, the beginning of the Jewish New Year in the fall with the high holidays. All of these new beginnings involve a lot of emotions. We have the fear of the unknown. How will things turn out in this new beginning? There is often nostalgia and fond memories for the past. After all, a new beginning comes after something has ended. There is the anticipation of a new experience. After all, we're not only afraid of something new, but often looking forward to it. And there is the hope for a brighter future. After all, we've made a change because we want to move in a new direction. The theme of the service this evening was moments, because I wanted us to savor this moment of new beginning. It is important to smell the roses, even if you have allergies, to notice where you are at special times in your life. How did we get to this point? Well, that's two stories. How Kol Hadash came into being, and how Adam Shalom became the humanistic rabbi of Kol Hadash. We'll put the first story aside for tonight, because I want to talk to you about the second, my journey to become a humanistic rabbi and to become the rabbi of Kol Hadash. Along the way, I hope you'll discover more about me and about my ideas, and most importantly, about my passion for humanistic Judaism. Now, unlike the original Adam of legend, I was not created out of nothing, out of the dust of the ground. Um, And my sister Eve, that's accurate, my sister is named Eve. Um, I I love my parents despite that, but it was was very cool. 
he did not come out of my rib. <laughs> I was born into a family and into a community, and my family comes from all over the Jewish map. Just to give you an idea, my mother's family are what are called Ashkenazic Jews. They come from Eastern Europe. Uh, she specifically was a Litvak, and there used to be a big war between the Litvaks and the Galicianers, the northern Yiddish speakers and the southern Yiddish speakers. Now it's more or less academic. But they were these Litvaks. They were Ashkenazic Jews from Eastern Europe, from White Russia, and from Poland. They spoke Yiddish. That was their home language. Her grandmother grew up at home speaking Yiddish. Um, and in fact, she went to a Yiddish language school after school. They were socialists. They were very progressive in politics. Uh, her, I think her great uncle was once the socialist candidate for governor in the state of Michigan. And you can imagine how well he did in the election. <laughs> um, but that was a very active part of their life. Uh, for a time, they were involved in a reform congregation, Temple Bethel in Detroit. But this was a different Temple Bethel. This was Temple Bethel in the 1950s. And the rabbi of the congregation then, that was her confirmation teacher, was a rabbi Sherwin Wine, who would go on to found humanistic Judaism. So it wasn't the conventional reform rabbi that you can imagine. And she grew up in the Midwest. She grew up in Detroit and came from that experience. So that's one half of the family. Ashkenazic, Yiddish, liberal socialist reform, and from the Midwest. On the other half of the family, there's my father's family. They are not Ashkenazic, they are Sephardic Jews. They originally come from Syria. And where they were before then, we don't know. Because the last name of Shalom doesn't tell you anything. <laughs> Just means you showed up a lot and said Shalom, and then that's, that became your name. Um, they're from Syria originally. They're from a part of Syria called Halab, Aleppo. Uh, the word Halab in Hebrew and in Arabic means milk. It was the town of milk. Um, but it's taken on the name Aleppo in English, not Milktown. Uh, they made their way through France to New York. And by the way, that's where my name got its spelling with a C. It's pronounced Shalom, just like the Hebrew word. It's spelled with a C because in French, the sh sound of the letter shin is with ch, like the word champagne or chateau, or in my case, Shalom. So don't get it wrong. <laughs> Although I will tell you it is an asset because anybody calling me for money totally butchers it. Is Mr. Chalom there? I know, I know what they want. <laughs> Makes it much more efficient. Now, because my father's family was from Syria, uh, even though they were in New York, they spoke Arabic at home. In fact, his grandmother lived with him for a time, and she only spoke Arabic. Although she would shush everybody when Franklin Roosevelt was on the fireside chat because you had to listen to him. Even if she couldn't understand a word he was saying, she felt very comforted by the sound of his voice. Uh, so he grew up speaking Arabic, and his sense of home food and home Jewish culture is not Hamish, which is a Yiddish word. It's not kugel. It's not bagels. It's lebna. It's idje. It's words that sound very foreign, sound very Arabic, because that's what they were. Now, his family was Orthodox. Uh, they were what I call laid-back Orthodox. So if they wanted their coffee on Saturday afternoon, well, that was okay. But if they did anything officially, they were part of an Orthodox synagogue. They had Orthodox marriages. They lived an Orthodox lifestyle. They kept kosher in the home and so on. He went to Orthodox school five, four days a week uh, and on the weekends after his regular school for two or three hours. Uh, so it was a very Orthodox lifestyle. And he grew up in Brooklyn, New York, with a very dense concentration of Jews. Particularly, the Syrian Jewish community was very insular, and around them, sort of like the bagel around the hole, was this vast world of Ashkenazic Jewish life that, in a way, insulated them from the non-Jewish world. So you can see, from these two directions, a wide variety of Jewish experience to draw on. What did they have in common as Jews? Well, it wasn't food, 
It wasn't the jokes that they told. It wasn't the language they remember their grandparents speaking. It wasn't even their religious training. What they found in common was that they had strong connections to Jewish civilization, and they had strong commitments and intellectual commitments about what they believed about life, about the universe, just like humanistic Judaism. They were strongly connected to Jewish civilization, and they had definite beliefs about their life in the universe. They knew that it was important to live an ethical life and that ethics were judged on how you related to other people, not based on what's in a book. It's based on how you live your life. They knew that the understanding of reality for them was based on a sense of the natural world and that over the rainbow, beyond the Big Bang, that's I don't know. And it's okay to have I don't know in science. It's just tough to have that in traditional theology. And they knew that it was very important for them to live a life of integrity. If they believed these things, if these were personal intellectual convictions for them, they wanted to live a life of consistency, to say what they believed and believe what they said, whether it was in synagogue or in their daily life. And so what did they do? They found a congregation that did that. And that was the Birmingham Temple, the, first, the founding congregation of humanistic Judaism. Now, I will tell you that by naming me Adam Shalom, they sort of predetermined my career path. Because what else could I do? <laughs> you know, the, uh, the pork broker Adam Shalom, it doesn't seem to work very well. I was their first new beginning, uh, appropriately named Adam, of course. I grew up actively part of the Birmingham Temple and part of humanistic Judaism. I went to their educational program from kindergarten through 12th grade, and I'm stuck with it for the rest of my life. I mean, I'll be up on Sunday mornings until I retire. Uh, I came to family and adult services when I was young. You may not believe it, given how much I'm talking tonight, but I was a very quiet child growing up, and I could sit through the entire adult service and not make a peep. Um, I even sat through my mom's college English classes in the back of the room because I heard her voice and I was quiet. It was, uh, it was very fortunate for her, and my sister did not turn out the same way. <laughs> uh, my parents often say that if they had had her first, I would never have come into being. <laughs> and I came to high holiday services. I have memories of that. My most vivid memories are after my bar mitzvah and my bar mitzvah itself, uh, being active in the youth group, uh, doing both social activities and social action or community service activities, and having close friends from the congregation because we shared a lot in common. Even if we came from very different backgrounds and lived in very different places, we had this identity of humanistic Judaism to bring us together. And this included a woman with whom years later I would fall in love and eventually marry, my <laughs> wife AJ. Uh, it all goes back to those days in the youth group. What were my impressions growing up as a humanistic Jew? Well, first, and this is a common experience for many adults and children who are part of humanistic Judaism, there, was, there were times where I felt different. I was Jewish among non-Jews, but the advantage for me was there were fewer barriers. I could go to anybody's house. I could eat anything they put in front of me if I liked it. And I was also, of course, not only a Jew among non-Jews, living in a non-Jewish world, but I was a humanist among more religious people, or at least people who were officially more religious. They may have lived their lives very secularly. They may have intellectually agreed with a lot of the ideas of a humanistic philosophy. But when it came time to where did they go on the holidays or what did they say when they went for special occasions like weddings or baby arrivals, they lived a more religious lifestyle or claimed to have those beliefs. So it was a minority experience in two senses, intellectually in the humanist side and ethnically in the Jewish side. What did this result in? Well, I loved my temple classes even more because here was a place where I was among people who not only were the same as me, but felt the same as me. And that's what made it a very home-like experience. It was in a way a home away from home. And 
it was even more important for me to have an experience of something larger than simply my own community. We went to national conferences, we went to teen conclaves when I was in the youth group, and even in college to con uh, national conferences for young adults. They were wonderful experiences to meet people in the same boat from other parts of the country. To know that you weren't simply an isolated, random occurrence that just happened to show up in Detroit. In fact, there were other congregations, like congregations in Chicago, congregations in San Francisco, congregations in Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., New York City, and on and on. The second memory I have, of course, is a memory of having freedom. For me, Jewish identity is not something that's restricted, that limited me from doing anything. I was able to meet whom I wanted to, to eat what I wanted to, to wear what I wanted to, to go where I needed to, and to have an experience of being free. I went to visit my father's family in Brooklyn one year for Passover, and I couldn't understand why they wouldn't give me a sandwich. I wanted a sandwich, and I, I knew there, was, there had to be bread in the house somewhere, and why couldn't I have a sandwich? Now, the ignorance of the rule was not good. But having the freedom of behavior to think, well, I, I can do what I want, it's my life, if, if I choose to do that or not, that's fine. That's the freedom side, that's the positive side that humanistic Judaism has chosen. So we need to do both, of course. Our kids need to both know why their Orthodox relatives don't have the bread and that it's their choice whether or not they choose to follow it. As it turns out, my wife and I have chosen to keep Passover kosher now, so my kids will also be asking me, why can't I have a sandwich? And I'll say, a matzah sandwich is good enough. <laughs> Another memory, the importance of consistency. It was the same in my synagogue as it was at home, and it was in school. You could ask questions. You got a reasonable answer. You didn't get a just because. You didn't get a because I said so. You didn't get the answer of the book of Job. Who do you think you are to ask that question? Questions were always answered with reasons, with evidence, with exploration, with intellectual and emotional experience. And having that both in the synagogue and at home meant I didn't have to choose one over the other. It was a consistent lifestyle. You know, any parenting book or guru will tell you, you can't simply tell your kids to do one thing and do something else. It doesn't work. They're very observant. They see what you do. They can tell what your priorities are. And so if you tell them, live this way at one time, and then you live a different way, it's not going to work. It works much better to live one way and to say the same thing. Because then you're not questioning part of it, and then the whole structure falls. So when they told me, be a good person, and then I went to synagogue and they said, be a good person, that worked. When they said, have the strength of your beliefs, and then at synagogue they said, have the strength of your beliefs, that worked. It was simply reinforcement and not contradiction. It reinforced our sense of cultural connection, because the Jewish we did at home was the Jewish we did there. And it reinforced our sense of ethics, because it was the same principle. You do what's good for yourself and for other people, most importantly. And the last memory I want to share with you, because if I give them all away, I'll have no sermons for the rest of the year. The importance of our version of Jewish identity. I remember when I was in Hebrew school, uh, because my parents were from different backgrounds, they had different ways to pronounce Hebrew. The Ashkenazic style of pronouncing Hebrew tends to put an S at the end of words. So Shabbat becomes Shabbos, or Sukkot becomes Sukkot, or Simchat Torah becomes Simchas Torah. And Sephardic style, which is the style that the state of Israel chose to follow, has a hard T at the end. So it's Shabbat and Sukkot and Simchat Torah. So I remember, my, I remember my parents arguing over how to pronounce these words. And, you know, remembering your parents argue is not necessarily the most 
joyful childhoods and memory. But the fact that it was important enough to them that they felt it worth arguing over which is the right way to do it, that they cared what I was learning, that it was an important part of who they were and who we were, that was very important. They weren't haggling over whether something was kosher or not. They were haggling over Jewish language. It was simply a different choice of what for us was an important part of our Jewish identity. When I was in high school, I remember going to school on the high holidays at times. If I had exams or I had important projects to do, that wasn't as high a priority for us. On the other hand, my wife went with her family to high holiday services. And my kids will go <laughs> to high holiday services. <laughs> but the point is that it wasn't what we did or when we did it as much as it was part of the family network. It was an important part of our lives. And what we chose to emphasize is what we really emphasized. We didn't simply say, oh, we value Jewish literature. We read it. We didn't say, we celebrate Jewish holidays. We, we did them. We didn't just say it. And it was a variety of Jewish culture. It was food that we ate. It was lighting Hanukkah candles and betting on which candle would last the longest, turning out all the lights. It was this argument over language. It was everything you can imagine as being part of a civilization. That, for us, was our Jewish identity. Now, this are my, these are my memories of growing up as a humanistic Jew, and there may be others in this room even who have similar memories. But there's a big step from being an involved member to becoming a leader and becoming a rabbi in this movement. In fact, for some people, the more they get involved in organizational work, the less they're attracted to being in a leadership position. Um, when I graduated from high school, or in fact, the, the year before I graduated from high school, Rabbi Wine, who had been my rabbi growing up, said I should consider becoming a, a humanistic rabbi. And I told him, honestly, I had never considered that as a career someone chooses to go into. It just hadn't occurred to me. I thought of attorney, judge, uh, comparative literature professor, who knows. But I had never thought about becoming a rabbi, and it percolated in my mind. So the summer after my senior year, I decided to get a job, but also try something else. So I got a job as a clerk slash secretary in an immigration attorney's office, which was a lot of forms and paperwork and phone answering, but I got paid. And I volunteered to work as a rabbinic intern at the synagogue, doing specific projects, and most importantly, following around Rabbi Wine as he did his work in the summer. Uh, it was a very eye-opening experience. As it turned out, of course, I much preferred the non-paying job to the paying job, but uh, it was an eye-opening experience for me. I had the opportunity to sit in, almost as a, an unobserved observer, at tremendously meaningful experiences. There was a funeral consultation, and it was a daughter and a second wife, and they didn't like each other so much, and it was a tremendously difficult situation, but seeing how as a rabbi you can help them work through some of the issues and most importantly create a meaningful eulogy that really articulates who the person was, satisfies the emotional needs of the people that were there. That was really powerful for me to see myself in that position, to be able to do that. So I saw both the funeral consultation with the fireworks and the eulogy and the visit at the home shiva after the service. I even saw an unveiling for a funeral that had happened the year before, a woman that had died in a car accident. I saw uh, weddings that he performed, a baby naming in somebody's living room, officiating at a bar and bat mitzvah, and all of these wonderful experiences that I could see myself leading and being good at and enjoying and helping other people to enjoy. Now I also, of course, when you follow around someone to see what their job is, I had the privilege of attending board meetings, going to executive board meetings, looking at the budget, and so on. Um, for many people, administration is a bad word, and not just for political reasons, even office reasons. 
I saw an item recently in a science news article that really explained the administrative side of my job and basically any job very well. Investigators at a major research institute have discovered the heaviest element known to science. The startling new discovery has been tentatively named administratium. The new element has no protons or electrons, thus having an atomic number of zero. It does, however, have one neutron, 125 assistant neutrons, 75 vice neutrons, and 111 assistant vice neutrons for an atomic mass of 312. These 312 particles are held together by a force called morons, which are surrounded by vast quantities of small particles called peons. Since it has no electrons, administratium is inert. However, it can be detected as it impedes every reaction with, an, with which it comes into contact. According to the discoverers, a minute amount of administratium causes a one-second reaction to take over four days to complete. <laughs> administratium has a normal half-life of approximately three years, but it does not decay but instead undergoes a reorganization in which a portion of the assistant neutrons, vice neutrons, and assistant vice neutrons exchange places. <laughs> in fact, a sample of administratium mass will actually increase over time, since with each reorganization, some of the morons inevitably become neutrons. <laughs> this characteristic of moron promotion leads some scientists to speculate that administratium is formed whenever morons reach a certain concentration. This hypothetical quantity is referred to as the critical morass. <laughs> now, believe it or not, as I've grown into the job, I have come to like both sides of my work as a rabbi, the administration and the celebration, because each is dependent on the other. Administration, phone calls, letters, writing notes, committee meetings, budgets, that work takes time, it takes energy, and it takes expertise, and it gets very little glory. But without them, the community context for celebration would not exist. In short, after this experience of the summer internship, I made the decision to become a humanistic rabbi with my eyes wide open. I went to Yale University for my undergraduate studies. I studied both a general Western civilization curriculum of history, political science, uh, philosophy, and uh, literature. And then I also took some classes in Judaic studies. And I found I really liked the Judaic studies classes. I went back for the summer and worked part-time at the attorney's office and part-time at the synagogue. And I went back to Yale again, and I took four religious studies classes, and I took Hebrew, and it was my best semester ever. And I said, how hard of a decision is this? <laughs> I found what I love to do. I found a profession that enables me to do what I love to do. It's also something I'm good at. What more do I need? My father asked me, how are you going to earn a living? <laughs> I said, well, I'm sure, it'll be, I'm sure it'll work out. I finished my BA at Yale. I went on to get a master's degree at the University of Michigan in Hebrew and Jewish cultural studies while I was pursuing my rabbinic program at our ordaining institution, the International Institute for Secular Humanistic Judaism. I was ordained by that institution, I won't repeat the name, in 2001 along with, of course, my future mother-in-law, Miriam Jarris, which was the first time in history that a mother-in-law and son-in-law were ordained at the same rabbinical ordination ceremony. And I'm working on finishing my dissertation at the University of Michigan this fall. Uh, as far as my rabbinic work, I began working for the Birmingham Temple as a rabbinic intern in a professional capacity, actually getting paid in the summer of 1996, and then again in 1997 through my undergraduate, uh, sorry, through my graduate program. 
I changed to an assistant rabbi when becoming, when being known as an intern got new connotations at the end of the Clinton era. <laughs> I decided being the intern, it was time to move on to something else. Uh, and I became a full rabbi in 2001 with my ordination. And I've worked at the Birmingham Temple from then until now, actually until last month. You saw what it was like for me to grow up as a humanistic Jew. What has it been like to work as a humanistic rabbi? Well, there are two sides to every Jewish experience. There's the kvetch and the kvel. The kvetch is the complaint, and the kvel is the thing that makes you proud, that makes you want to brag. What are some of the kvetches? Well, I've heard kvetches from the secular end, and it's an experience of being through the looking glass. There are people that say, I'm too religious. I think to myself, I know me. <laughs> I wouldn't say that about myself. And they don't like organized religion, so I like to highlight how disorganized we can be. <laughs> or disorganized religion. But when people ask me, why are you a rabbi? You know, I don't like this organized religion thing. You're, you're too religious to have a service. Who are you serving? All that kind of stuff. My response is that what humanistic Judaism does, what a congregation like Kol Hadash provides, is that it meets the needs that religion serves. Religion serves the need for defining a life of meaning, for creating a context for community, for dividing time into meaningful units of a week, a month, a holiday, a year, providing a way to celebrate important passages in life. These are all things that religion does. You could say if it quacks like a religion and waddles like a religion, call it a religion, or at least call it something religious. And that's, in fact, what we do. It may not be religious in the conventional sense, and there may be very few hands in the room that would raise if I said, are you religious? But what we do is serve the needs of religion. And so calling myself a rabbi or having the experience of leading a congregation is very appropriate. I'm a Jewish community leader, officiating at ceremonial events, leading holidays, providing definition of a life of meaning. Walks like a rabbi, quacks like a rabbi. <laughs> Call it a rabbi. A second kvetch from the other end, from the religious end. You're so not religious. Why call yourself a rabbi? Why call your group a congregation? Why call it Judaism? Why not just call it Jewish-like things? <laughs> well, the answer to that is that it's fine for Reformed Jews to have Reformed rabbis and for conservative Jews to have conservative rabbis. There are so many secular and cultural and self-titled humanistic Jews out there in the world. Why can't they have their own leadership that's trained to serve their needs? Don't fit that square peg into a round hole. Find the setting that works for them. It's very appropriate for our congregations to call themselves congregations because we congregate. We meet. We serve the needs of religion. To call our leaders rabbis because they are Jewish community leaders. And for me to identify that way is a very profound sense of who I am now. I said to someone once when they were referring to me by my title, Rabbi Shalom, I said, you know, I've been Adam a lot longer than I've been rabbi. I, I was just getting used to being Mr. Shalom, because <laughs> that was my father growing up. And someone pointed out to me, you'll be a rabbi a lot longer than you will have been a mister. And they're right, that being a rabbi is who I am, and it's what I do. Now, there's a third side to the job that's both a kvetch and a kvel, and that's what's called expectations. A lot of people have expectations of the ideal rabbi. And I want to share with you a, a short paragraph that describes the ideal rabbi. It's from a book called The New Rabbi, about a congregation in Philadelphia that tried to hire a new rabbi. It's a, a great read, by the way, if you haven't read it. This is a paragraph that describes the ideal rabbi. See if it's anyone you know. Someone who attends every meeting and is at his desk working until midnight. Someone who is 28 years old but has preached for 30 years. <laughs> Someone who has a burning desire to work with teenagers but spends all his time with senior citizens. 
Basically, someone who does everything well and will stay with the congregation forever. No problem. <laughs> there are all ex always expectations, and there are also previous experiences. I find when I meet with couples, for example, to plan a wedding, I'm not only judged on who I am, but on who their rabbi was growing up, on the other rabbis they've talked to before they've come to me. It's everybody's experience of a rabbi, and I can only be myself. I can't be your rabbi growing up. But, on the other hand, I'm not going to be your rabbi you had growing up, <laughs> if, it's, if it was a problem. And <laughs> the challenge for me is, has been double in that I'm not only trying to become my own rabbi and dealing with expectations, but I'm following in both of my jobs, first at the Birmingham Temple and then here at Kol Hadash, two long-term, groundbreaking and very successful rabbis, and Rabbi Wine and Rabbi Daniel Friedman. I'm indebted to them for having built this opportunity for me, but it is, it is tough to fill those shoes. I mean, I wear my shoes. I don't try to fill their shoes. But it is a challenge to follow those, uh, those successful rabbis. But I want to share with you, most importantly, the absolute joys that I have in my job. Because these really highlight for me what's important about what I can do for the congregation. The first is when I connect with adults and kids in a meaningful way, when they really get it, that's powerful for me. I had the experience once teaching sixth, sixth grade, um, the, or I'm sorry, it was seventh grade. We were doing a game, a particular game where you had to run and touch something and then go back to something else um, with a map of Israel. And the kids decided I had made an unfair rule, that I had set a rule and then I had changed it in the middle of the game and it wasn't fair. So they boycotted the game. <laughs> they said, we're not going to do this. You're not being fair. I thought to myself, great. <laughs> because they learned that if the situation isn't fair, don't accept it. You know, fight back in a way that you can. And they did so in a very dignified way. They didn't throw a tantrum. They didn't be disruptive. They said, we're not going to do this. So I told them the next week, good job. It wasn't the lesson I wanted to teach. But, <laughs> but they, they had learned the lesson, and that was wonderful. And the second experience I had with that same class, we had a, a person who had joined the class uh, at the beginning of the year but hadn't been in the school beforehand. And so was getting a little acclimated to what we were doing. We were having a discussion about Jewish emancipation at the end of the 18, uh, 18th century, uh, 19th century. And she said to me all of a sudden, wait a minute, do you people believe in God or not? It came out of nowhere. <laughs> and I didn't answer right away. And the class answered and said, well, we focus more on what we can do with our lives. We don't really know. And so we don't pay as much attention to that question. We're more interested in ethics and behavior and, and what we can know about the universe. I was floored. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's wonderful. They had learned it. They had internalized it. They agreed with it because they articulated it themselves in their own words. That was a very powerful experience for me. That was an absolute joy because I knew that they had learned what I had been trying to teach and that they had become better people because of it. And they had learned how to answer someone in a welcoming and accepting way. They didn't say, you're, you're being stupid for asking that question. They said, this is our approach, and, and it was wonderful. That was an absolute joy. The second absolute joy I've had is comforting people who need it. You know, that experience of seeing the funeral consultation, even though it was problematic, was really formative for me because I saw how much people needed me at times of special transition and also at times of particular challenge. We had a, a longtime member who'd been very active in classes I had taught who had hip replacement surgery. It was her second hip replacement because it had worn out after 10 years. So if you think one is bad, the second time around is no more fun. It was over the high holidays, so it was Yom Kippur. She's sitting in the, in the rehab facility. 
So I was very tired. <laughs> After all the high holidays and evening service and morning service and family service, I was a little tired. But I thought, you know, this person really needs it. So I went to the facility. It was actually on the way to the breakfast I was going to anyways uh, with my family. But I thought this would be nice to do. So I stopped by. I went to saw her. And she was so happy. It made her day. And I called her the next couple of days. She was, she was ecstatic. It was just a wonderful experience for me to see how much it meant to her for me to be there. And I've had this experience again and again when I visit people in the hospital. When you first show up, you, they look like they should be in a hospital. And that's why they're there, because they're very, very sick. But as time goes on, the body is an amazing thing. In many cases, they recover, they become more healthy when I visit them the second time, or they get out of the hospital, or in some cases they're kicked out of the hospital before I can get back, and I see them at home, they're moving around. I saw heart bypass patients from being unconscious in the ICU to walking, to walking a block, to driving themselves. It's a wonderful experience. And to be able to help in any small way in that process is very powerful for me. Another absolute joy of the job, it's hearing the audience laugh when you're funny. <laughs> and it's seeing them nod when you're right. When they really agree with what you're saying, that's a powerful experience too. It's been a powerful experience of joy for me to discover that in some cases, non-humanistic Jews value what we provide. And they understand our importance for Jewish life. It may not be for them, but they know somebody that it would be perfect for. I had this experience recently. Um, I was invited to participate in a dialogue of rabbis from different movements for a journal called Shofar, which is published once a month. And the topic of the discussion was mitzvot, commandments. I thought, well, I'll have a very short part in this discussion. <laughs> does not apply. <laughs> but I realized that in exploring the topic and exploring both the theology behind it, but also what is contained in mitzvot and commandments, while it's a cultural folkway, it's an uh, evidentiary uh, piece of our past and of our present, something that Jews do choose to do, even if we don't. Um, and there are elements of it that we may choose to do as the voice of the past and not the voice of God. If we choose to observe a holiday called Yom Kippur, if we choose to celebrate a Shabbat on a Friday night, if we choose, as some do, to fast on Yom Kippur or not to fast, or to fast in our own way, they're all because of our connections with the past. And in that way, we can articulate a sense of commandment that makes sense of a world where it's hard to live a life strictly according to the commandments. I was talking with a uh, conservative rabbi and a reform rabbi, and they were grappling with the dilemma, do I wear my yarmulke when I drive to synagogue? Or if I walk to synagogue, can I play guitar when I'm there? And how do I find these balances if I'm not doing all? And my approach was that there's a, another value we have called freedom, which means you can choose how to live your life. And it's a value we didn't always get from Jewish history, but we also got from Jewish history. And there's also the sense that if it's the voice of the past, there are a lot of voices of the past that we don't listen to. After all, this audience is not segregated between men and women. That's very traditional. It's very Jewish. It's something we've chosen not to do. But we did light candles. We did share the fruit of the vine. We chose what we wanted to. And so being able to present that perspective was something new for them. And then there was a little hostility from one of the rabbis, but that was okay. Um, I'm, I'm used to that too. But from the others, there was really a sense of, wow, oh, that's a very interesting way to look at it. That's a new way to think about it that I hadn't thought about before. And getting that experience has really been a joy in the last 10 years or so for our movement. And most of, uh, one of the most important things for me that I found in teaching is that 
you learn something new and you share it with somebody else. That's a wonderful experience. Learning something new is, is great on its own. But being able to share it with somebody else, that's after all what the rabbi originally was. It was a teacher. Rabbi acquired disciples. Disciples acquired, acquired a rabbi. They learned. And the rabbi learned and taught to them and learned from them. Sometimes people think of the rabbi as the designated Jew. This is the community leader that has to do everything Jewish on my behalf. Now, the idea of suffering on people's behalf is not really a Jewish idea. <laughs> you know, that's a more Christian theology. But if you, if you take the perspective of, well, the rabbi has to do everything and then I don't have to do anything, what you get is a, a leader in a flock, right? Then the flock simply follows the leader because they don't know any better. But the ideal in the Orthodox community, by the way, is not the designated Jew. The rabbi has no more requirements on him than any other person for learning, for practice, for intensity of commitment. They're all the same. Now, the rabbi has more learning. He's more advanced. But that doesn't mean that he has any less requirement to learn more. And so the same should be true for humanistic Judaism. We all need to learn. I need to learn. You need to learn. I'm a little bit ahead. I'm in a way not the designated Jew speaking in front of you, so to speak. Imagine me as the bicycle rider leading the pack. It's Tour de France time, so it's appropriate. I'm not trying to leave you behind. I'm leading you. And you're following me. You're bicycling in your own way. We have the same rules for pedaling. Gravity works the same on all of us. We have the same need to learn for greater understanding of our world and our Jewish identity and, and everything about what it means to be human. I'm just a little bit ahead on the Jewish track. And by the way, some of you may be ahead on different tracks. You know, they have people that have a great mountain time and some people that are great sprinters and some people that are great time trials. Some people are physicians. They understand the human body better than I ever will. Some people are astronomers and they understand the origins of the universe more than I can get from Stephen Hawking's books. But my job is to be the expert in Jewish civilization and to be your guide in philosophical exploration. So in that respect, I'm a little ahead of the pack. But if you're not coming with me, then I'm, I'm not riding a race. I'm training against myself. And that's not what I signed up for. I didn't want to run on a track by myself going in circles. I want to lead a group with me on this new adventure. We're not following the same Tour de France. We're going on a tour to world. We're exploring everything that we can find of interest to us and to our children. The most important joy that I have as a humanistic rabbi is the joy of waking up in the morning knowing that the work I'm doing makes a difference in people's lives. The joy of knowing that I'm working at the best job for me, the best job for my skills, for my interests, for my passions. It's the joy of realizing that I'm not living to work. I'm not working to stay alive. I'm working in my life's passion. And an entire community is supporting me in doing that. The most important part for me of being a humanistic rabbi is the gratitude that I can express to my congregation for creating an opportunity for us to realize our visions together. The future is without form. The spirit of possibility hovers in the air around us. But the waters of Lake Michigan have parted, and I have crossed to the other side. <laughs> Now, part of my heart will always remain with the Birmingham Temple. You never forget your first love, even if you find your life's partnership with someone else. But all of me is here now, the rabbi of Kol Hadash. Together we will take the burden of new creation upon ourselves, 
new programs, new ideas, new members, and new directions, all based on the strengths of the past. On this Shabbat, we rest, but we rest with a purpose. We rest to build our strength and our energy for new creations. Our work is not done with the end of the rabbinic search or with the setting of a year's calendar. Our work together, Kol Hadash and Rabbi Adam Shalom, has just begun. Thank you very much. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.